This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Getting really cr- Oh, it's you. Right, we are live with the illustrious Mark Robert for the first of our next series. We wound up doing a trilogy on the CIA, Mark. I I don't know if we intended to do it, but we kind of did that. And now we're doing another trilogy, and this one's about whom? This is going to be uh, about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, covering probably 1967 to 1975. So it may take three episodes as we discussed previously because of the trial and the hearings and, um, you know, the history of it. Well, perfect. And I I wanted to let everybody know ahead of time because we wanted to break it down to where it was cohesive in a sense that, so this episode is, I guess the establishment episode about, what happened, what's led up to it, and basically the trial. There are a lot of conspiracy things. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot going on. We will go into all of it, but not today. Not today. That is going to be the next one. This is really important to establish everything. So how can you say something was a conspiracy until you have the facts on the ground, and then you go look and then, I guess, readdress the facts or look at the facts with more evidence. We'll call it the scientific method. Mm-hmm. You got to follow the science, Eric. Exactly. Yeah. The science and the scions. So, um, this is an ambitious project. There's a lot going on. Mark is personally involved with, um, well, Sirhan Sirhan, the defense team, Paul Schrade, uh, family members. So, I, I cannot think of anybody more qualified to discuss this. I I will be shuffling pictures and doing what I can to help Mark expound on everything. And where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the announcement or Um, something else? Well, we could start with a couple of things. One is I'm working on a feature film um, about the assassination and the aftermath of it as as a narrative feature film, um, which is in development, not a documentary. I am also involved in the parole hearing, which is coming up August 27th. Um, I'll be part of that parole board hearing, um, representing Paul Schrade, uh, one of the victims in the assassination attempt. Uh, Paul Schrade is now 96 years old. I'm also making a documentary about Paul Schrade and his life as um, hmm a close confidant of the Kennedy family and an executive for the United Auto Workers. He was uh, at the ambassador that night and was shot in the head by Sirhan, which is, that's fairly well established at this point. 
Yeah, and he's in a lot of the the pictures. Uh, you know, when they show the witnesses with the bandage on the head and everything, right? Right. Yeah. He he's you'll you'll see when we put up the photos uh, who Paul Schrade is. You a very large man, uh, still very sharp. I spoke to him this morning. He's ninety six years old. He lives here in Hollywood, uh, nearby me, and I've been over at his house a bunch of times recently discussing this and the documentary and the parole hearing. Uh, which is coming up August 27th. I was just on a Zoom conference call with Sarah's attorneys discussing the uh, format and limitations of this parole hearing. He is the longest active prisoner in California, almost 50 some odd years now that he's in there uh, for a murder he oh, wow. did not commit, according to Robert Kennedy Jr., the son of Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, and that's something I, w- I hope... Um Barnes can make it. We don't know for sure. But um, from what I understand, and I don't know, I guess you can't really discuss strategy, but one of my big worries is that guilt or innocence is irrelevant to a parole hearing from right. what I understand. Well, they, they have indicated before that uh, we'll get into this. They have indicated before that he's not shown remorse and he cannot show remorse because he cannot remember the crime itself. He has a complete blackout from the time he has a cup of coffee with a girl in a polka dot dress to himself being strangled on the steam table with the gun being wrestled out of his hand. Uh, Despite multiple attempts of hypnosis, he's not been able to recall anything between those two events to this day. And he's apologized extensively and he admits clearly that he did the crime, but he does not have remorse for something, according to the parole board, uh, that he can't recall. So hence, he remains at uh, Raymond Donovan State Prison here in San, Di- uh, San Diego, a little bit south of me. Yeah, it's just uh, and, and that's so frustrating to me because I'm like, OK, well, obviously, there's a hole in the law here somewhere because he's like in the you know perfect trap. <laughs> it's like circular logic. Right. You got to be remorseful. Well, how can I be remorseful? I don't know what. I, I feel bad for everybody around me. So then that's like a non-apology apology. But. Non-apology apology. But there's also been the release of 78,000 felons by Governor Newsom, many of them doing life without parole, many of them murderers. And everyone's been released except this guy. And if you're for Maybe you should say COVID. Maybe you should say I'm a COVID risk. Right, right. I mean, you know, I mean, you could talk about prison reform all you want, but he's the last... Japanese soldier on Iwo Jima, apparently they, you know, it's, it's political and, and nothing could be more brazenly political than letting everybody out except him. I mean, this, even if he did do the crime, I mean, there's, there's murderers. Newsom just released over 78,000 hardcore felons into California this past uh, uh, year. You're I mean, this is a 78 year old man, Eric. I mean, I don't think he's going to start shooting everyone in a pantry of every hotel in LA. Yeah, let's hope not. That's and besides, okay. the hotel's gone anyway. The hotel's now a uh, high school called Robert Kennedy High School. <laughs> Perfect. Ironic. Okay, so let's go back in history then. What, you know, tell us about Robert Kennedy, you know, who he was as a person. Right. That's why I wanted to start because a lot of people don't realize how we got to from point A to point B. Robert Kennedy is the attorney general of the United States for his brother, who's the president of the United States. And uh, John F. Kennedy did not want his brother to be the attorney general, but his father, Joseph Kennedy, insisted upon it that your brother would have your back. That uh, after the Kennedy administration, this was now made illegal that you can't have a relative being the attorney general for the president of the United States. 
But at the time, Joseph Kennedy, in real hardcore political terms, wanted Bobby Kennedy, who had been the campaign manager for his brother, to um, be the attorney general of the United States. He, he did have a law degree. It wasn't that he was unqualified. It was just a question of nepotism. And um, they had worked together when uh, John F. Kennedy was a senator from Massachusetts when they ran the rackets McClellan hearing. Uh, Bobby Kennedy had been an investigator, and there's plenty of footage of him browbeating Jimmy Hoffa during those hearings. And he was doing that as an investigator. Well, that's Sam Giancana right here. He also testified in the hearings where Bobby Kennedy uh, caught him giggling in between taking the Fifth Amendment to every question Bobby Kennedy asked. And uh, he famously said to Giancana, only little girls giggle, Mr. Giancana. Are you a little girl? Um, keep in mind, J. Edgar Hoover, who they had photos of in some awkward positions and also was a gambling addict. The mob had compromised J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, into not prosecuting nor acknowledging their very existence. And when RFK became attorney general of the United States, in 1961, he vowed to take apart the mafia. And in fact, the increase in prosecutions when Kennedy took over as attorney general of the United States was 700% of an increase against organized crime. It was That's literally a dumb question. Mm -hmm. Was he acknowledged them as mafia? Because there was a long time that they would not even acknowledge the, the word mafia. Right. The Justice Department under J. Edgar Hoover, before Kennedy was attorney general, would not acknowledge the word mafia. That's a fact. It starts yeah. with Bobby Kennedy as attorney general. It's the first time you ever hear the mafia okay. uttered by the Justice Department. And that's from Bobby Kennedy, who starts wiretapping all of them and going after them and prosecuting them, including Jimmy Hoffa, who he sends to federal prison, you know, and, uh, there's plenty of attempts and, and, and uh, threats against Bobby Kennedy's life coming from the mafia itself. You know, so a lot of people believe that the mob was involved in his assassination. I don't happen to believe that, but um, it's a good cover story, you know, for both brothers that the mob was involved in, in both of those. You know, I, I don't believe it was true, although Jack Ruby was clearly mobbed up and was clearly paid $50,000 to rub out Oswald, which he received and put in a safe in his office at the uh, carousel club. That's been pretty well established. Well, there's a lot of um, Giacana tied in with his brother, right? With JFK and Cuba, because the mob was running around in Cuba at the time. And, and JFK is winning a pretty close election in Illinois. I thought that there was involvement or rumors. And there's a chat in here talking about that, that, um, Giancana may have helped put his thumb on the scale oh, a little bit. No, no, bit absolutely. I mean, they did, Bobby Kennedy himself was a was was such a mad dog prosecutor. This was irrelevant to him. None of this mm. phased Bobby Kennedy. I mean, it, it, you know, he took his brother's victory and became attorney general, and he was just an incredible straight shooter. He went after family friends. He, I mean, he prosecuted okay. family judges that, that they knew that. They, they were surrounded. They were ideologues, you know, in a good way in terms of prosecuting everybody. He didn't care that it was the mob. But the point of the matter is he made a lot of enemies. And one of the enemies he made was LBJ himself. LBJ and him had a feud going back to the 1950s when LBJ made disparaging remarks about his father being a supporter of Hitler. And Bobby Kennedy hated uh, uh, 
LBJ's guts. And it goes back to the feud right here in L.A. during the 1960 Democratic Convention, where his mm. brother offers the vice presidential slot to LBJ as a mere uh, formality. And LBJ shockingly accepts the job as vice president. And Bobby Kennedy goes downstairs to LBJ's suite and says, what the fuck are you doing accepting that offer? And he said, my brother does not want you to be vice president of the United States. The unions hate your guts. The northerners hate your guts. The liberals hate your guts. You're a southern cracker. And I want you to come out publicly and not accept the offer as vice president. And LBJ said, you can kiss my ass, bunny. And he slammed the door in his face and he went back upstairs to his brother, where the two of them sat on the bed discussing the dilemma that they were in, as recorded by Evelyn Lincoln. Uh, just a couple of years ago, who was there as JFK secretary who witnessed the entire event. And they both said that this mm. can never be revealed. The night before that happened, Hoover sent two of his men into JFK's suite to show him photos that they had of JFK with various women, including Judith Campbell Exner, who was a girlfriend to Sam Giancana. So LBJ uh, was privy to that because him and Hoover were best friends. And LBJ was ushered into the vice presidential slot by J. Edgar Hoover and his actions of showing JFK the photos of women that he was uh, uh, having affairs with. This was not unintentional. The night before he goes and offers the job to LBJ. Wow. So. So Bobby is not like his brother, though. No, Bobby. Bobby is is a. is not a cool-headed character like his brother. He's a hothead. He really is a hothead. And he goes downstairs and gets up in LBJ's grill and, uh, you know, demands that he recant and not accept it. And LBJ says, you can kiss my ass. And that extends the feud even further because, I mean, LBJ's job uh, three years later is to get his brother to come to Dallas with the help of John Connolly who is the governor of Texas. John Connolly, of course, was the former campaign manager for LBJ when he stole the first election and got named Landslide, Landslide Linden by uh, 80 some, 86 votes out of, uh, out of one county that was brought in way after the voting stopped counting. The next day, mm. all of a sudden, these votes showed up in a box, and that gave him the senatorial position that uh, uh, allowed him to eventually become the congressional position that allowed him to become the Nancy Pelosi. He was not only was he Nancy Pelosi, keep this in mind, he later became Mitch O'Connell, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. So here's one mm. man who was Nancy Pelosi. He was Speaker of the House. He became Senate Majority Leader. Then he became Vice President. And then he became President of the United States. No man has ever run the, run the, the, the hat trick plus one uh, other than LBJ. And he gets so that. Literally was the the um, oh God. What do you call that? The, the order of death. I mean, like all the way to the speaker. You know, every person in uh, the line of inheritance or the line right. of you know, whatever right. of secession and of uh, uh, yeah successful. Yeah. Thank you. And so uh, he, thank God. Thank God that's never happened again. That you know everything's been perfect in uh, in the elections um, from then on. Yeah. Thank God. So <laughs> anyway, so Bobby Kennedy gets a call at uh, Hickory Hill, his house in Virginia, not so far from where you are. And it's oh, somebody's blaming that Rayburn is speaker. 
Uh, before Rayburn, I think LBJ was Speaker of the House. You can maybe double check that. I thought LBJ okay. before Sam Rayburn, but I could be wrong. Uh, he does become Senate Majority Leader and become Senator. I, I thought he be, was Speaker of the House, but he was uh, a pretty powerful congressman uh, out of his right. in Austin. Um, anyway, make a long story short, he and Connolly lure Kennedy to come to Dallas in the fall. That was their part of their job as um, to to make sure that they got to Dallas and then they could control everything from the parade route to, you know, the, the assassination to the mm-hmm. medical examination to, you know, getting on Air Force One and leaving. He is still the attorney general of the United States. And it's extremely awkward for Bobby Kennedy. LBJ calls him up tauntingly from Air Force One and says he wants the oath of office to be read to him. Uh, And Bobby Kennedy says, you're already the president. The oath of office is a mere formality. You don't really need to read the oath of office. But he's doing it to stick a knife into Bobby Kennedy's side. And Bobby Kennedy says, I'll have one of my aides call you with the verbiage for the um, oath of office, which he then gets a judge to come on the plane. Jackie Kennedy soaked with blood. He gets Carl Albert to do the famous uh, Congressman Carl Albert. Uh, to give him this famous wink out of his eye in the photo where he is uh, reading, right before he reads the oath of office from the judge, that he wanted to get appointed to the Supreme Court, actually, as woman judge. Uh, But the Kennedy brothers had their own uh, picks at that point. But the point of the matter is the plane takes off. Bobby Kennedy, the plane lands. Bobby Kennedy rushes past him, doesn't even acknowledge him, and embraces his sister-in-law, Jackie Kennedy, who's covered with blood. And Jackie Kennedy uh, tells William Manchester in, the, in, in, in his famous book about the, the day of the assassination that she believed that LBJ uh, killed her husband. And that is interesting because the Kennedys later went to court suing William Manchester to take that out of the book that they authorized of William Manchester to write. And he took out the X amount of pages out of his book and put them in a safe uh, which were statements by Jackie Kennedy about her belief that LBJ had killed her husband. And most of the nation initially felt that LBJ was involved. It's usually the main suspect in a case like this is usually the person who succeeds the person who was killed. You know, whoever kills the king is usually the first suspect. And in this case, it was right. He doesn't know what to do. He goes into mourning Bobby Kennedy and begins to read a lot of Greek literature and Greek uh, um, uh, poetry. He takes a hiatus. He, he wants to go and travels around. He goes to South Africa. He goes to um, um, uh, Poland at one point. And it becomes a time when he's advised that he could be the vice presidential candidate for LBJ in the next election in 1968, uh, 1964, I'm sorry. And he believes that he can use that vice presidential slot as a launching pad to become president. LBJ doesn't want him anywhere near him. So LBJ calls him into the office. Eventually, this is all over the papers. This is going on for weeks that RFK is going to be his nominee uh, for vice president. Now, keep in mind, there's no vice president at that time because LBJ was the vice president. So there's a year with no vice president. Oh, really? Nobody nobody stood into the role? No, no. I didn't uh, know that. 
Yep. So so RFK would be his vice president. And the last thing LBJ wants is a guy who could kill him and become president, which is what he did to his brother. So he says, no fucking way is this going to happen. But how do you handle it? It's a very delicate operation. Right. So he calls him in his office. They have a very, very tense conversation. And he tells Bobby Kennedy that he's not going to be the vice president of the United States um, in the upcoming election. And Bobby Kennedy, at that point, decides to become senator from the state of New York. And he does do that, runs for Senate in the state of New York. He can't can't live there, so. Okay, that makes sense. Did he um, immediately resign as attorney general when JFK was assassinated? Or No, no, that's what's so awkward about it. He is still the attorney general of the United States. Okay, I was wondering. It's extremely awkward. Here's the guy who killed his brother, who's the president, but and he doesn't want to leave the attorney general spot because you give up all your power. He still had some power as attorney general and, you know, famously called up the the head of the CIA, McCloy, from Hickory Hill uh, the day of the assassination and said, did you guys kill my brother? I mean, who would do that? I mean, why would you pick up the phone and ask the CIA if they killed his brother? This guy says no, McCloy, of course, you know, because he's not privy to anything. He's sort of an outsider handpicked by the, the Kennedys to run the CIA after his brother fired Dulles and Cabell, um, you know, uh, General Cabell, whose brother was the mayor of Dallas, surprise, unsurprisingly, who changed the parade route, um, making it make the right turn and the left turn onto Elm in front of the deal, uh, Texas School Book Depository. That was done by a CIA agent, CIA operative um, <laughs> who was the mayor of Dallas. On his deathbed, the CIA revealed that Cabell, the mayor, of Dallas was a CIA operative and that his brother, uh, General Cabell, was, of course, second in command to Dulles at the CIA, who was famously fired by JFK, um, who said he would scatter the CIA to the to the uh, four corners of the earth. So you've got and the mayor Hoover of Dallas. And then Hoover worked for RFK, too, right? I mean, as attorney oh, general. Okay. So the relationship between Hoover and RFK was extremely tense. He they hated each other's guts. And Hoover would not respond to RFK. RFK installed a red phone on Hoover's desk with one number, his own. And when that phone rang, he made Hoover answer that phone. The day that JFK was killed, Hoover famously unplugged the phone and threw it away, never having that phone ever again ring in his office from the Attorney General of the United States. And he then went and met with LBJ, and they signed a verbal pact to watch each other's back. I mean, that's pretty well recorded on the um, audio tapes that LBJ recorded of him and Hoover, that they were blood brothers, according to LBJ. And they they lived across the street from each other for 30 years in D.C. I mean, they were neighbors. They were, they were best friends. I mean, um, LBJ knew about the predilections of Hoover as a cross-dresser and a, and a homosexual with, with Clyde Tolson, his lover, uh, the mob had photos of Hoover uh, performing oral sex on Clyde Tolson, according to numerous, numerous mob sources. Uh, the stories are just legendary, the photos, and also the gambling addiction. You know, they would cover his bets and everything else. I'm sorry I stepped on you if there was more CIA. I just wanted to get Hoover into that mix, too, because I felt like it was going. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that the, it, the, the Hoover connection, the blood brother relationship with um with LBJ is really interesting uh, because of the hatred. 
that both LBJ and Hoover had for Bobby Kennedy. And that's been established in numerous books. I mean, there's quite a bit of documentation about that. But LBJ consistently said about RFK, he said, I will cut his throat if it's the last thing I do. And on other occasions, he would famously make the gesture of cutting his throat when he said it. So not only not only was it multiple times, there were multiple gestures of the cutting of the throat by LBJ and also the statement saying, I will cut his throat if it's the last thing I do. He hated this guy's guts. And these were not political arguments. He took he took uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy hunting on his ranch one time. And Bobby Kennedy wanted to know if LBJ was going to run in 1960. And LBJ didn't want to show his hand at that point. And he gives him a shotgun. And uh, the shotgun that he gave to Bobby Kennedy was a trick shotgun that recoiled so much it knocked Kennedy flat on his ass. He had adjusted this shotgun to recoil and knocked Bobby Kennedy back on his ass. And he taunted him while he was laying on the grass, saying that's no place for someone in the Kennedy clan to be laying there like that. Why don't you get up, Sonny, and learn how to shoot a gun like a man? I mean, there's incident after incident of these two guys going at it throughout history. You know, um, we we don't have time to document them all, but let it be said, they hated each other's guts. Hated each other's guts. I'm very curious, though, the relationship with Hoover seems unusual with LBJ because everything that I've ever heard about LBJ would, he wouldn't seem to be the type who would like a Hoover. He didn't like it. It was about power. I mean, it was ass kissing 101. He, he was a guy who, even though every president brown nosed Hoover, LBJ was the king of the brown noses when it came to Hoover. You know, he said, you're my blood brother. I'm going to keep you. You're, you're never going to quit on me. I, I mean, there was always a debate of how to get rid of Hoover. And Hoover would constantly show up with the next president. He would go to like the candidates, actually, from what what um, um, what's his name? Uh, Walter Mondale said uh, in an interview, I saw a video interview. Walter Mondale said he would go to the candidates and show them photos of women that they were having affairs with just to indicate to them that he expected to remain on as FBI agent uh, in charge as the head of the FBI, if they indeed won the election, he wouldn't even wait. Hmm. He would go to each candidate and show what he had on them. Well, that's probably wise. (laughs) Put it out there early, especially. Right. Well, he did that. And he could see how they reacted, I guess. And if they were like, up yours or whatever, and they didn't seem to play ball, then he got, oh, okay, I guess I'll release that. You've got- right, well, his, his speech was right. always, I got your back. They know about this. No one's going to get this because I'll protect this, but it's in my right. side. I'm with you. That was his whole act, you know, but every both sides knew what it was about. And well, LBJ, makes- LBJ had, was so vulnerable. He had so many affairs. I mean, it was just absurd what he was doing. Uh, Helen Hagen Douglas, who was the congresswoman from Hollywood right here, uh, he, he was having sex with her and walking through the house, walking through house halls, holding her hand. And both of them were married and tourists were, were reporting going, look, it's the famous Helen Gahagan Douglas, the actress from Hollywood. And she's with LBJ and he would sleep over her apartment. He, he had sex with her the night FDR died right after the funeral in one of his side offices in the House of Representatives. I mean, you know, he was extremely vulnerable to someone like Hoover. Is that it? I mean, man, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm speculating, but 
Is that the main issue is that Hoover had his peccadillos and weaknesses, LBJ did. And it's like they only trusted other people like themselves who were corrupt as hell. Mm -hmm. But a Boy Scout, because you're kind of representing Bobby Kennedy as a bit of a hothead, but possibly a bit of a Boy Scout. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, deeply religious. He had a lot of kids. And, um, you know, from what I understand, um, not like his brother, Jack in terms of womanizing and doing what Jack did. And he, you know, protected Jack's back. And that's why the father, I believe, wanted him to be attorney general of the United States because he knew that uh, his older brother was a womanizer and, you know, into a lot of weird shit. And he wanted his other son to, you know, to cover his back, which is what he did for the most part until they got his head blown off. Wow. Right. Okay. So we're fast forwarding this fast forward because i wanted to jump into 68 with the war going badly in 1968 right. uh just so you know you're talking about a guy in lbj who is not only an alcoholic like i was discussing earlier with you both dick goodwin and bill moyers both go to two separate psychiatrists in washington dc and without telling them who their uh patient was described the um symptoms of the patient a and both of them went to the top two psychiatrists, came back, compared notes, and both psychiatrists, without knowing who the patient was, said exactly the same thing, that the patient was bipolar, he was a megalomaniac, he was a sex addict, and an alcoholic. And they were describing LBJ. And Dick Goodwin said, I don't know about you. Dick Goodwin was a speechwriter for JFK, who was a holdover from the JFK administration. Dick Goodwin said, I don't know about you, but I'm getting the hell out of here. And Moyers couldn't do that because Moyers was part of the LBJ's administration. And Dick Goodwin turned in his resignation immediately and got a teaching gig, I think, at Oberlin College. And LBJ called him on the carpet and said, where are you going? And he said, I, you know, I'm resigning. I just want to teach. You know, he just said, I just want to be a professor now. And he said, I'm sending you to Vietnam, boy. And he said, what? And he presents him with his draft notice and he's sending him into country to be drafted to be a soldier and go into Vietnam. And Dick Goodwin shits in his pants and goes, I can't go to Vietnam. I'm going to be a professor at Oberlin. And he goes, well, I hope you love uh, the jungle because that's where you're going, boy. So he rescinds his resignation and stays on. And that was how LBJ kept Dick Goodwin on uh, from leaving. And the reality of it is that he would take out his cock and wave it around the White House. And in the even when he was in the oh, House, right. he, was, he took out Jumbo. I mean, he called his cock Jumbo. He named it Jumbo. He took Jumbo out all the time. He waved Jumbo around the men's room when he became president. You know, he well, didn't he invite reporters in when he was taking a dump. and right. well, to- not, not just reporters. He would do it with his own aides. And that was also to, to, you know, dehumanize them more than himself. It was to make it was it was another power trip you know, that he would make them watch him defecate, not because of it was an embarrassment to him. It was an embarrassment to them. He would also make them swim in his pool naked. And when they got out, he would just belittle the size of their penises saying, do you call those cocks? Those aren't cocks. And he would do this to his own men and then take out Jumbo and show him Jumbo and say, this is a cock. And his own brother said that he used to do that even as in college. His brother said, that he named him Jumbo back in college, that he had this huge cock. And, but the point of the matter is that he, he would use it as a weapon. You know, he had like eight secretaries and he had sex with all of them. And he would tell them how to dress, how to cut their hair. Um, you know, he had a buzzer system installed where when Lady Bird left 
her residence, the buzzer would trigger up in his Oval Office cove up there. So the Secret Service could then uh, monitor her progress and tell him through the buzzer system that uh, she was on the move, that uh, Lady Bird was coming and he would knock it off, you know, because he got caught a couple of times by his wife uh, having sex with the secretaries in the office there. By the way, there's a quick super chat I want to address, and then we're going to get into it later. Um, if you don't quickly get uh, very in-depth video interviews with the 96-year-old Paul Schrade, what are you doing? He's old. There's many risks. Guess what? He has. I think you have four hours of footage. I have over four hours recorded right now. Yeah, I thought the same thing. So um, we've been going over to his house and recording it professionally. I've got about four hours right now with Schrade. Amazing stuff because it, it – he was involved in all these other political campaigns going back into the 1950s uh, as a representative of the United Auto Workers and the Democratic Party. So he was a delegate, a Democratic Jimmy delegate. <laughs> no, right. I mean, but he, you know, he was a West Coast representative. I don't think he really dealt with that, yeah. but he did, you know, out of Detroit. That's for sure. You know, uh, uh, the two brothers who ran the United Auto Workers, uh, Hoffa was a teamster, by the way, but nevertheless, the the uh, Schrade's got some amazing stuff, and he is the last surviving victim um, of the right. assassination. Which was and, and we will hopefully be putting some of the footage into this. We just don't right. have that. Yeah, I have I have given you some of the, there's some with me in there with him, and and I he has you know read my script and and has given me notes, and he's a consultant on the film project as well. So uh, I spoke to him this morning, and and he he's still you know. You know, once in a while, he forgets somebody's name, but uh, amazingly lucid cat for 96 years of age. Amazing. So uh, who knows? I'm just happy he's tons of years older than me that I have something to live for. <laughs> you know, I get depressed. And I go, oh, if I can live as long as Paul Schrade, I, it's, you know, I got plenty of time, you know. But anyway, yeah, no getting, getting back to 1968, what happens yes. on January 30th of 1968 is the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive is when Walt F is the attack by the North Vietnamese uh, Viet Cong on the embassy in Saigon, catching everyone off guard. Um, that, according to Walter Cronkite from CBS News, he declares the war is now unwinnable after the Tet Offensive. And Johnson... Uh, according to sources, when he was manic, he would uh, give all these different social programs away manically. And when he was depressed, he would bomb the shit out of Hanoi. <laughs> so, there, so depending on his bipolar situation, he was either Santa Claus or Dr. Doom. Uh, according to well, Santa Claus is Satan with a trans <laughs> right. transfer a couple letters. Right. So, <laughs> so in 1968, in January, after the Tet Offensive, LBJ uh, is so wrapped up in the war that he begins to think and talks to his aides about not running for a second term. It would actually be part of a third term because he, he becomes mm -hmm. president in 1963. So he gets one year there. He wins by a landslide in 64. So this is now 68 coming, uh, coming up in November of 68. So in January of 68, Nobody knows what he's doing. One day he says, let's get the campaign going. And the next day he says, I'm not going to run. The internals on this thing are fascinating because the, the, the Democratic machine, the Democratic Party is assuming that he's going to run for re-election. There's nobody on the earth who thinks he's not going to run. The, the leading candidate on the other side is Richard Nixon, who is going to be a shoe in uh, for the nomination. And um, 
everybody's assuming it's going to be LBJ versus Nixon. And yeah. LBJ, uh, in, well, in 1964, he had a 75% approval rating uh, during that election, some enormous uh, approval rating. I mean, it, it, it was reduced quite a bit because of Vietnam. But nevertheless, each day he says to his aides privately, I'm not going to run, I'm done. And then the next day he'd say, you know, let's get this campaign going. And so they didn't know what the hell he was talking about, but he, he talked like that all the time. So it turns out that Eugene McCarthy um, starts to run against him. And McCarthy is a, is a peace candidate, Democratic peace candidate, Senator Eugene McCarthy. And, and he begins to run. And in the New Hampshire primary, LBJ is not on the ballot. And in a write-in, he barely beats Eugene McCarthy as a write-in candidate. And Bobby Kennedy sees and senses blood in the water that LBJ is vulnerable. And I believe the date that he does this is three, March 16th, 1968, Eric, which you might have a little bit of footage of uh, right here. For the presidency of the United States. I do not run for the presidency merely to oppose any man, but to propose new policies. I run because I am convinced that this country is on a perilous course and because I have such strong feelings about what must be done and I feel that I'm obliged to do all that I can. I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old, in this country and around the rest of the world. I run for the presidency because I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair. And that was really the salient point. So he um, talked about Vietnam, he talked right. about regulations, because um, at the same time, if I recall, there were riots going uh, with all the um, African Americans, you know, breakdowns in the black community, and things weren't well, going. In, in the summer of '67, yeah, obviously in the summer of '67. Now, now, LBJ, when he hears this on 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 March 16th, two weeks later, he announces mysteriously that he will not seek nor will he run for president, and completely shocks the nation when he announces this. And the reason is that, A, he can't beat Bobby Kennedy, and he does not want to be humiliated as a sitting president of the United States being defeated by a Kennedy, and the, especially a guy whose guts he hates. He hates this guy's guts. Sons and the feet. If you, you can maybe show a little bit of, of, of LBJ oh, here. For sure. Yeah, right. I, I, I love this one. because uh... Sons in the field far away with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. 
accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. That statement there shocked the country. That was hidden in the script. Nobody saw that last uh, two sentences in the script. And he read that. Nobody knew it was coming, not even his wife. He put his hand up. He put his hand up to signal his wife that he was going to read that uh, final statement. And that was a signal to her that he was done. And he, up until that minute, nobody knew if he was going to read that final statement or if that final statement was even in the script. Um, so, I mean, Bobby Kennedy's flying across the country. His aides run onto the plane at JFK Airport in New York and tell him he's done. LBJ's out. He's out. He's gone. And everybody's shocked. Nobody saw this coming, including Bobby Kennedy and his aides. And he is now uh, left to run against McCarthy and the hand-picked presidential candidate that he handpicks, which is Hubert Humphrey, who is his vice president, who is his puppet. What LBJ says to Hubert Humphrey is that you will do everything I tell you or I will not endorse you. And he extracts uh, an admission by Humphrey that he will be his puppet master. And Humphrey uh, becomes the puppet of LBJ, uh, literally saying everything that LBJ wants him to say about the war, not allowing Humphrey to turn against the war, which is really what LBJ wanted, now becomes the mopping up operation by LBJ. Four days later, Martin Luther King is killed in Memphis, Tennessee, with the behest of J. Edgar Hoover. This is not a coincidence. Uh, RFK will be killed literally uh, two months later in June 6th. And again, not a coincidence. This is what I consider to be a mopping up operation by LBJ at this point. These are not coincidences. You've got these dates of, you know, uh, April 1st, essentially March 31st, LBJ announces he's not going to run. Four days later, King is killed in Memphis. And then literally two months later, uh, 60 days later, uh, Bobby Kennedy is killed in, in Los Angeles. Uh, I do not believe those dates are coincidental. I believe it's part of um, LBJ working with Hoover and the CIA to eliminate. Uh, with MLK, I believe it was Hoover's own animus towards Martin Luther King and LBJ allowing him to get rid of a nemesis that Hoover hated. I don't think LBJ hated MLK. I believe that was a gift for Hoover. And then the RFK one was specifically LBJ uh, killing off a, a incredible, incredible blood enemy to himself. And also the fact that he won the California primary and was probably going to get the nomination over his own hand-picked candidate uh, that was Hubert Humphrey. So wow. when we get into episode two, we'll talk more about that. But, you know, what happens is the Bobby starts winning primary after primary. He loses Oregon, but he wins Indiana and uh, he wins California. And the party that's at the Ambassador Hotel is the last party he'll ever attend. And uh, that's where Sirhan comes into play in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel, where Sirhan uh, takes his eight-shot revolver and fires it indiscriminately into the crowd, uh, wounding multiple people. And yeah, that's the uh, the, the twenty-two caliber Ivor Johnson uh, cadet revolver that Sirhan used that night. Now, Sirhan is nowhere near him. He's three feet away in front of him. 
and Bobby Kennedy is killed with two bullet shots right to the back of the head. Uh, you know, scientifically impossible. Noguchi does an incredible coronary uh, examination of the body. He brings in representatives of all three military branches, including Cyril Wecht out of Pennsylvania, to oversee the autopsy. And it's declared uh, a perfect autopsy by even the LAPD. So the crime itself, when you look at the crime in the kitchen, the speech is over. It's 110 degrees in the ballroom. He, he can't get out either way. And they go through a back door behind the stage, right behind the podium. And to cut through the kitchen, he's led by the maitre d Carl Euchre, who's from Germany, who grabs him by the wrist and takes him through the crowd. Now, this was not planned. He was supposed to go off either to the left or the right. Uh, Euchre takes him through the back door. And really, the person who sends him through that back door is Fred Dutton, one of the campaign managers and an old friend of the family. Fred Dutton says, go this way. And that way leads right into Sirhan's uh, killing zone. And Sirhan is wrestled onto the steam table by Rosie Greer of the Los Angeles Rams and Rafer Johnson, the decathlon Olympic champion, both of whom were LB, were RFK's bodyguards. And the gun is being banged on the steam table by everyone, including Euchre. And he keeps firing and hitting people in back of Kennedy, who one of them is Paul Schrade, who is hit by either the first bullet uh, fired out of the gun right in the middle of his forehead. You see Schrade, Goldstein, Stroll, Elizabeth Evans, and then Wiesel in the back is shot in the stomach. He's an ABC TV news executive. She's an ad executive. Stroll is a reporter. And Goldstein, I think, also worked in the news media. But Schrade was standing right in back of Bobby Kennedy. He was shot right in the middle of his forehead, uh, straight out of Serhan's gun. And he goes down and he described it as uh, feeling like he put his finger into an electric socket. Uh, they propped his head up on a, on a, on a chair, but it blood was I'm not a, on a hat, rather. And uh, blood was coming out of his forehead. So RFK slumps backwards and there's a guard who is with him right in back of him. And he falls on the guard and and he's mortally wounded. Uh, Romero, the busboy, comes over and um, gives him his rosary beads, which Kennedy clutches the rosary beads. He's still conscious. And Sirhan is ushered out of the um, ambassador kitchen by the LAPD, who finally do show up on the scene. He's being held down by all these people who want to rip him to shreds. There's a recording uh, by a radio guy named West, uh, who recorded the whole thing of his commentary, which is really fascinating, uh, in real time during the shooting. Um, uh, you know, Kennedy lives for another day. When You know, when you see the footage, um, you think that he's going to live. When you see the CBS News, the ABC News footage, which goes on for over uh, an entire night, they're very optimistic. Uh, yeah, here's a shot. You'll see Euchre in the back there uh, standing up. Um, I think this is George Plimpton here in the front, the writer, and uh, a couple of other people in the back, everybody trying to get the gun out of his hand. And he kept clicking the gun, even though it was empty. He seemed to be in some hip hypnotic trance, according to George Plimpton and others. And he seemed to have, according to Bill Barry, the FBI agent, and Euchre, to have super strength. There's a tiny little guy 
they all claimed that he had super strength and was fighting like uh, 10 men at the same time. And um, before that, he was standing by the stack of trays. He was standing behind it with a woman in the so-called polka dot dress who took him to get a cup of coffee from the bar. When, when this event starts, Sirhan is at the bar in the uh, Ambassador Hotel. He has four, three to four Tom Collins drinks and says, I'd like to get some coffee. He goes out to his car to drive home. He realizes he's too drunk. Accordingly, takes the gun out of the car, brings it back in, meets the woman at the polka dot dress, and the bartender tells her to take him to the room where the coffee is. She takes him into a room with a silver urn, according to Sirhan, and has some coffee with her. She then it realizes that Kennedy's coming through the kitchen, and accordingly, she's his handler, which we're going to learn about in the next episode. Uh, but she handles him by taking him, seeing that Bobby is being ushered into the kitchen. She handles, quote unquote, Sirhan by taking him into the kitchen. She then pinches him with some sort of a pinch, according to witnesses, and spins him around to face the incoming Robert Kennedy and the entourage. She literally handles him as a handler in the polka dot dress. She's described by numerous witnesses of uh, dark hair, kind of ethnic looking hair, des described by the 18-year-old uh, Sandra Serrano, uh, a local East LA native who was a volunteer for Kennedy. She was out on the balcony on the stairs and said they ran down the stairs selling, saying they killed, we killed Kennedy, we killed Kennedy, according to Serrano. Serrano is being interviewed by Sander Van Oker of NBC News. So that went out live on NBC National News. Her statement that the woman in the polka dot dress, which was seen by others and commented on by other witnesses, that she ran down the stairs saying, we killed him, we killed him. And she said, who did you kill? And they said, we killed Senator Kennedy. And she stuck to that story uh, as long as she could until she was browbeaten into submission by Sergeant Hank Hernandez of LAPD, uh, who was their, um, you know, interrogator and uh, a guy who ran their lie detecting program. Uh, the lie detector was merely a device for him to get witnesses uh, flipped who went against their narrative. They said they had the assassin and there was no conspiracy. And I think that's where they left it. There's a photo of Hank Hernandez. He worked for the CIA. He was sent to Central America for a long period of time. He worked to help topple regimes and interrogate uh, various dictators, enemies uh, down in Central and South America by his own admission. And um, later Kent was brought back right after the assassination to work with a Lieutenant Manny Pena uh, who was his uh, partner, him and Manny Pena were in charge of um, Special Unit Senator, which was SUS, the investigation. Uh, his Manny Pena was called Manny shoot -em up Pena. He shot 11 different men. He worked in the rob bank robbery division out in uh, the San Fernando Valley. He also was sent to Camp Peary by you, uh, near you, Eric, in uh, <laughs> Virginia, uh, to learn the techniques of the CIA
And uh, what? And no, no, I've talked to CIA uh, officers. I don't know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. about he was yeah, also he was what? also brought back. The two of them were brought back as the team to stovepipe the investigation into the killing of RFK. They were the two guys in charge, both CIA operatives, both working in LAPD intelligence division. Both of them had taken leaves of absences from LAPD to work on CIA missions, all thoroughly documented at this time. Uh, both of them were brought back to the ambassador afterwards to get the bad witnesses out to browbeat, to stovepipe, to get rid of documents and to focus on Sirhan as the lone assassin of Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. Amazing. And we are definitely, we're running a little behind on it. So right. I think we're going to be pushing the trial to the end of the next. Too. That's okay. That's all right. Because I, 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 I think it might work out well to, um, yeah, I think we need it this time. Some of the testimony, like, let me just say that there are denials about polka dot girl. Yeah. People flat out deny. There's polka dot girls. Let's just say that there may be evidence that there was polka dot girl. Mm -hmm. We'll discuss that. We'll discuss how they bring in their own polka dot girl, uh, Valerie Schulte, who was having sex with the assistant DA, John Minor. She was a uh, Newport Beach blonde beach bunny, and she came in with a green and white polka dot dress, and they tried to front her in as the polka dot girl. Unfortunately, her leg was in a cast from a ski accident at Big Bear, and she had a crutch, which nobody saw, and nobody identified the uh, polka dot dress girl as being a blonde-haired uh, beach bunny. But their attempts to do this stuff uh, were extraordinary by the LAPD to, to tamp down on these different theories. Yeah, and it's uh, amazing. What's so interesting is, well, I guess they're, the CIA trilogy may be spawning into uh, four now. Or five. Well, there's a little bit. Of, there's elements of it. I mean, the LAPD is clearly the ones physically handling this, and you know, in this case, I think the CIA were just mechanics. You know, in terms of dealing with this thing, you'll find out in episode two how Sirhan was get, had a ham radio, a shortwave radio, and was writing in his notebook, and uh, they were sending him information through Morse code. He didn't understand Morse code but he was able to write down in real time uh, Morse code directions that came over his ham radio and how he met a guy with another ham radio in a coffee shop in Pasadena who became his handler after he was hypnotized um, uh, in Corona del Mar at the racetrack. And uh, even to this day, uh, when given Morse code, he will freely associate the words onto a notebook and does not understand Morse code. Here's a picture of Sirhan on the horse. I think his horse's name was High Bay. He had never ridden a horse. They gave him a multi-thousand dollar thoroughbred horse to ride. He immediately fell off, hit his head, cut his eye, and disappeared for a number of weeks that are unaccounted for, according to uh, his family, who didn't see him for weeks on end when dealing with this head injury. He then uh, begins to get into hypnosis and has various people... Um, seeing him who are doctors uh, around that area in Corona, around the racetrack. And that's where most of us believe they interceded in his life and began. Here's a, a shot of uh, Sirhan uh, dressed to the nines as a jockey. Uh, it's a very rare photo of him. 
back in the day when he was a jockey briefly and uh, thought he would become a famous jockey and make millions of dollars. So we're going to get into that in episode two. Um, what happened at the Corona Del Mar racetrack, which was mob run. It was run by the mafia. Uh, even Jay Gahoba used to go to that racetrack and they, the mob would tear up all of his uh, losses in terms of uh, betting on the horses. Uh, but that's where I believe the mind control and the hypnosis begins with Bobby Kennedy, uh, with killing Bobby Kennedy by, by Sarah as a patsy. All right. And uh, on that note, we have a uh, little bit of a tease on where this is all going. Oh, this is great. I forgot about this. Sinatra, yeah. Well, that's right. been fun. Okay, we'll get into that. And, that came uh, out while JFK was still alive, by the way. Right, right. That's interesting. Interesting. So I uh, wanted to leave that little bit of a tease, but kind of a hint on some speculation. What maybe could happen? Can't say for sure. We weren't there, but we can definitely speculate. So until next time, Mark. We'll also get so the um, we're also going to get the parole hearing update next time, Eric, because uh, the yes. parole hearing is August 27th, which I will attend and be making a statement uh, at the parole hearing of Sirhan Sirhan at uh, Raymond Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. So I'll have an update uh, for every for your audience on uh, the parole Perfect. hearing and what happened and that whole crazy crap. Who knows what's going to happen there? Well, we're gonna try to we're gonna try to do part two as soon as we can after the parole hearing. Dude. Right, right. While it's hot, and who knows? I mean, we may walk out. We may walk out with Sirhan Sirhan. There you go. There we go. I'm, I'm calling a uh, next guest, Sirhan Sirhan himself. <laughs> amazing guest. So until next time, everybody. Hey, if you want to know more of this going on, there's more to watch. Trust me, we're barely scratching the surface. We've got two other episodes, and I Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at Eric Hunley. Dot com. See you next time.